0: All right, today I am continuing this series that we're doing on faith practices and we're quite a ways into this. We've been doing this throughout the summer, so I'm I'm going to start with a snapshot of where we're at because maybe you don't remember all the way back to the beginning of May when we began this and have been through this, 12 of these faith practices that we're going through and, and uh, these are not columns down, they go across, so We are up to today talking about prayer, which means after this week we've only got three more to go as we've been going through this. So I I hope you've been following along and hopefully taking some notes and Uh, doing some of those suggestions that come in the booklet for journaling, or using the resources that we provide with the website link to follow along with that. Because, again, our goal on this is that by the end of the summer, we can look back at all 12 of these, and you can look over the notes that perhaps you've taken and look at and say, all right, which two or three or four of these faith practices really jump out and resonate That we can work together then to say, what would a personal discipleship plan look like for me? And it may be different for each one of us here, what that would look like. Based on which of these 12 really come to the front as meaningful and powerful and growing in faith. And again, the word that I've been using all summer through this is the word better. This is about being better disciples that we can follow God more closely than perhaps we do now. And that's not to say that we're bad at following God or to say that we're bad at being disciples. It's to acknowledge that we can always be doing better with that. We can always grow closer to God as we do that. So that's where we're at in this as we go forward. Today, looking at the faith practice of prayer and what prayer means. During the time of the Revolutionary War, so this is the late 1700s, it was General George Washington, wasn't president yet then, he was general of the Continental Army, led the Continental Army in that struggle against the British troops at that time. And particularly the winter between 1777 and 1778 was harsh. It was a hard winter, and that was the winter when the Continental Army was mostly camped at Valley Forge and suffered heavy losses, not just from battle, but from the winter itself, from disease and illness, from injuries that had been sustained. It was a desperate time for the Army, so as winter gave way into springtime, and then springtime, the fighting heats up again, Washington looked at his forces and saw how depleted they were. And in May of 1778, on May 2, General Washington said, you know what, we're not going to fight today. I want everyone to put down their arms, we're not going to go out to the battle line. We're going to have a day of fasting and prayer. And he called on his entire army to do this. Let's not fight today, let's pray today. Coming before God in that. Um, and Washington was a devout man of faith in that. So I have no doubt that he practiced prayer regularly, and you find in his memoirs and journals his dedication to that. But we see something else in a story like this too that perhaps resonates with many of us, and I know I've seen this at times too, that moments of desperation can often drive us to our knees in prayer, right? It's when those needs that we have before us are made so clearly abundant before us. When we see that, sometimes we feel like, I have no choice now but to pray to God because I don't know what else to do. We see examples of that all around in our society. I know in the time that I had spending uh, working as high, a hospital chaplain, I would see something of that often in the ER, working with people who would come in in trauma in that kind of situation where there felt like there's nothing else I can do now but to pray. Prayer can be like that for us, I think. And, and maybe for some of us, prayer has taken that shape from time to time. It's this moment of just desperate crying out. But today I want us to see how prayer is a faith practice, that it works as something more than just a moment of desperation, more than just coming before God with, God, here's what I really need right now, or here's what I would really like some assurance and direction for right now. But it can be a faith practice that grows us in discipleship. So we're going to look at that in a passage that brings before us something rather familiar for some of us called the Lord's Prayer. And it comes from Matthew chapter 5. That's where I'll find that. Matthew, or, I'm sorry, uh, Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, where we're talking about how prayer works when the disciples ask Jesus, How do we pray? in these words of the Lord's Prayer. Before I read that, let's pray together. God, as we open your word today and we read what you have here for us, we pray that your spirit would open our minds so that we may not just see words on a page, but that we may hear what you are speaking into our lives so that we can follow you more closely as the disciples you're calling us to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 6, and it's not going to be on the screen. If you've got a bulletin in front of you, it's printed there or there are Bibles under the chairs there so that you can see this passage that comes to us. Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to begin at verse 5. Here's what it says. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Their sins. Your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Something about prayer, then, as this comes to us, and what it means for us to be people of prayer, and how that works for us as a faith practice that brings us before God. Looking today at these words of the Lord's Prayer, and I don't, maybe most of us here have that as a prayer that we know from memory, that, that you've got that memorized, or maybe you've got that memorized from a time when you know it from the words that come from the King James Version of the Bible, right? It, it's a prayer that's filled with these and thous and thines and, and that kind of language from 1500s English. Maybe you know it as a prayer that uh, you would recite around the table, daily or weekly or on special occasions that kind of a thing a prayer that is familiar in so many ways to so many people but i want us to see how this comes in this passage as a faith practice as it works for us so a little something about what we know as the lord's prayer you find it in two places in the bible it's here where we read it in matthew and it also shows up in luke's gospel so you feel, you find it in those two places and the contexts are different from one to the next. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a bit. Maybe you also know the Lord's Prayer as having a line at the end that we didn't read here. right? That, that you know the Lord's Prayer with a doxology at the end. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And if you look in a King James Version of the Bible, it's there. And the King James, but not in ours. So, how does this come together? How, how did this prayer come to be the way that we have it and understand it? Well, scholars have pieced together that, that last line, that doxology at the end, was added later. It was added later, and it's found in some ancient writings of the church, a writing called the Didache, which is a teaching that was used in about the 2nd and 3rd century. And from there, it became evident that that was added because as the church used this prayer, they added that line on as a doxology at the end to complete that prayer and make it more useful for settings in worship when they would gather together that way. And that line got added in as scribes would copy because, you know, they didn't have printing presses back then. So copies of the Bible were hand copied and written down. And so there were some manuscripts of the Bible that it showed up later on. This last line for yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. And by the time they wrote the King James Bible, those were the manuscripts that they had to see and write with. But since the 1500s, archaeology has discovered older, more complete and better manuscripts of the Bible that don't include that line. So that's why the English translations of the Bible that you have today in our time, like the NIV that we use, drop that last line out because it wasn't actually said by Jesus or written in the Gospels that way, but was added later. Now, so does that mean you shouldn't use that line when you prayed the Lord's Prayer? I, I'm, no. That's not where I'm going with it. It's a good line. Keep it there. It's appropriate. right? Don't drop that out because the early church said this was a good thing too and added it and has used it for centuries like that. So there's nothing wrong with that in that, in our practice of doing this prayer. I'm going to keep that one out of what we're looking at today, though, because we're looking at what we have in Scripture. So just looking at the words of the Lord's Prayer as we have it in Scripture is what we'll be looking at today. So that's how that came to be in that. Then something about the context where it is. In Matthew here, the context is that it comes in a series of teachings that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, These teachings from Jesus where he's on the hillside, on the mountainside, teaching his disciples and people there. The Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew chapter 5, 5 verse 1, and it begins with a series of teachings that maybe are familiar to you as well, called the Beatitudes. And the Sermon on the Mount goes all the way through the end of Matthew 7. So chapters 5, 6, and 7 are all tied together as this one long teaching And this teaching on prayer comes right in the middle of that. So we understand something about that. Jesus is giving a teaching for his people. The first part of the Sermon on the Mount was largely about interpretation of the law and how we interpret the law now. And it's filled with language that is maybe familiar in ways where Jesus goes through one commandment at a time and says it with the line, You have heard that it was said but now I say to you. And he goes on and on with that. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Then he gets to this teaching on prayer, and in the teaching on prayer, he starts focusing on something else. Jesus does. He starts focusing in particular on hypocrisy. And if you keep reading forward in the Sermon on the Mount, the passages that come after this as well focus on hypocrisy, the tendency for religious people to say one thing, but do another thing. That seems to be his focus as he keeps going forward in Sermon on the Mount. And in this passage we read today, he gives a mention to that, doesn't he? Don't be like the hypocrites who stand up and pray in the synagogues. So he's giving something of attention towards that. Luke is a little different because you don't have what we see in Matthew as the Sermon on the Mount in Luke. You find some of the same stories, but they're scattered around in different places. So Luke's treatment of the Lord's Prayer comes in a different setting, a different time, a different place. And we're not looking at that one in particular today. But understanding that, Jesus gives this teaching to his disciples to be used in a variety of settings. Matthew chooses to place it here in this setting to get our attention on these teachings of Jesus. So how does this work then? As a prayer that builds us in discipleship. It works as a faith practice. Here's what I want to do today. I want us to just spend a little time going line by line through this and looking at what these various Petitions or requests of the Lord's Prayer mean in the context that we see them here in Matthew's Gospel and how that works for us as we think about prayer and what prayer means for us, okay? So, the first line that comes to us in verse 9, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That this is a line that addresses God in a way that gives access to God. Access to the presence of, of God. Jesus, when He comes, and we read about this in the Gospel, so often Jesus addresses God as his Father. You don't find that kind of language in the Old Testament in how the people of God addressed God, but Jesus does. He gives a close family relationship in how He addresses the Father. And we see throughout the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, the way that God reveals himself to be a trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Son addresses the Father as they are close together. But here in the Lord's Prayer, for the first time, Jesus says, Not just my Father, but our Father. Now we're a part of that family, we are brought into that relationship. There's intimacy in those words. And this is something new that God's people had not experienced before. Even though they would have practices of praying and just read the Psalms, you know from the Old Testament in the Psalms that God's people cried out to him in ways that could be incredibly personal and intimate. But also in the Old Testament, the practice of having access to God went through the priests. That it was the priests, the Levites, those were the people who were the mediator. You could not get to God without going through them because they were the ones who had access to the temple. And the temple, for the Old Testament, the temple is where the presence of God was in his dwelling. So you had to go through the priests. Jesus is giving a prayer here that shows us a little something different. You and I have direct access to God through Jesus. We've declared that already this morning in the songs that we've sung and with those words that we heard from the Belgic Confession. We pray through Jesus and have direct access to God through that. But then there's that other line, Hallowed be your name we don't use the word hallowed very much anymore, right? It comes from the same Greek word that from where we get the word holy. You can use those words almost interchangeably. We understand something of what's meant by holiness. Holy means it's reverent, it's sacred, it's special, it's set apart. Jesus is combining two different things here. We pray to a father who is at the one hand is the creator of all the universe. He holds the stars in his hand. He is above everything. He is beyond us in ways that we could never imagine or attain on our own. That is the God who is above us, a God of transcendence. But now, at the same time, this God who is above us and holds all things is now a father as well. Someone who's close. A relationship of intimacy. A God who knows each one of us by name. Knows our days. Knows our thoughts. Knows our concerns. That God is both of those things at the same time. The majestic, all-powerful creator of the universe and the close Father who knows every intimate detail of who each one of us is. That we come before God in that way. That is our presence before God. And that is God's presence with us. So that's where Jesus starts with this prayer. Then he goes to the next line, verse 10, where he talks about the way that we have a place before God, a place. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, it's not so much here that that he's giving a direction towards this, right? A, A direction in the sense of, well, we aren't the ones who go to God's kingdom. It's God's kingdom who comes to us. And although in the immediate context here of this passage, There's truth to that because Jesus represents the kingdom of God and Jesus is the one who came to be present with them in their place. This is more about a prayer that realizes what it means to be in that place, the place that Jesus has brought to us, the kingdom A place where we place ourselves in submission to God's authority and control. Think about how that works. Because the language there in the prayer is the language of kingdom. We don't use those terms much anymore either. Kingdoms. Because we don't live in a time of monarchs and kings. But that was the time of the Bible. So they talked about kingdoms that way because they still lived in a time with kings. Think about this though. What does a king represent? in that time and in that place and in that culture, the king was the one who represented authority and control. The king was the highest official in the land. The king had rights to all the property and could take whatever the king wanted and could do whatever the king wanted to do. The king had that kind of authority and control. So when you live within a kingdom... You're living within a place where there's someone who has ultimate authority and control over everything. That was the understanding of kingdom. And I know we don't live in kingdoms like that anymore, right? We live in, well, we live in a constitutional democracy. At least in this country we do, right? A a place where we say there are ideas that we put together in this document of the Constitution, and we hold ourselves to the authority of what we all agree upon as those ideas. Something that we would refer to as the rule of law. But we would say that has a certain amount of authority, doesn't it? Authority. Authority and well, let me just put it into a simple everyday kind of thing. Authority that says that those who make the rules and the laws in this country can set speed limits on the road. Speed limits that I'm supposed to obey. Supposed to, right? We're all supposed to obey. I don't have the authority to choose to get in my car and drive however fast I want, however I feel like doing it. But we submit ourselves to an authority above us. So there's a place for that in this prayer too. A place that says, God, I want your kingdom, your authority, your control to be evident in the place of my life right now, where I'm at right now, in the way that I live right now. If you were to go all the way back in the Bible to the very beginning, Genesis, in the creation, in, in Genesis chapter 3, we read about the very first sin that happens. Maybe you're familiar with that story. Adam and Eve and the tree, the fruit that was forbidden. The very first sin that takes place there is that Adam and Eve go against the authority of God. God sort of set down the rules of, hey, here's this garden, and you can have anything you want in this garden except that one. You may not touch that one. That was the authority laid down by God, and Adam and Eve said, no, but I want to make the rules. I want that tree too. They step outside of the authority and control of God in an attempt to take authority and control for their own. And sin comes into the world. And doesn't that characterize what sin is like ever since? That sin for us so often is an attempt to go outside of God's authority and control. So a prayer here, a prayer that Jesus gives for your kingdom, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is a prayer that says, God, put me back in that place where I submit to your authority. God, put me back in that place where I know you are the one in control and I'm not the one trying to hold on to that. That's what it says about place, to realign myself with God's authority that way. Move on to the next line. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. Now, we live, in, we live in times today where we have houses with a pantry and canned goods, freezers and refrigerators. Most of us don't know what it means or what it's like to have to actually depend one day at a time for food, the way people back then did. But you get the idea of where that's going. That there was a need for food to survive. A need for provisions. And it's not just talking about food and bread here. right? Jesus is using this as symbolic language to expand beyond to all of the provisions that we need to survive. But this is a prayer, a line of the prayer that has to do with position. What position am I in in receiving the blessings of God? One in which I recognize that God provides every day what I need. What I need. Rather than a position that says, I can take whatever I want. Those are two different things. That we recognize in this prayer that God is the source of our provision. So what that does then, what that line of the prayer does for us, is it's a line of trust, isn't it? That's really where the position stands. I'm going to live in a position of trusting God for my needs. Sometimes we live in times when that becomes very abundant in front of our face, that I have to trust God for my needs from one day to the next. And sometimes we live in times of so much abundance that we can lose sight of that. That we maybe perhaps take for granted all that God has provided and that we perhaps overstep our place of taking more for ourselves than what we need, than what we should. There's sort of a reference back to the Old Testament here when it talks about bread. Dad. So I, I think the people of God and when Jesus spoke this word, the people who were the Israelites who heard him speaking it, they would have made a connection in their heads. They would have made the connection to manna, daily bread, manna, of course. We know that story from the Old Testament. They all did. That when God's people were in the wilderness, the wilderness, a place where there was no provision, there was no food, there was no water in the wilderness, that for 40 years God provided manna, bread, every day, and just enough for that day. If you go back in Exodus and read about that, you find that people who gathered, went out every day and gathered it in, had just enough, not too much, not too little, That those who had enough to share, shared with others. And that it wouldn't keep for more than one day. Except for on the sixth day when they would gather enough for two days, right? So that they wouldn't have to go out on the Sabbath. So God provides for daily needs. This is a prayer then that acknowledges, I need to be in a position of trusting God. what I need one day to the next move on to the next verse verse 12 this is a verse about posture forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors now here in Matthew that's that's pretty much a literal translation Matthew does use the Greek word for debts a financial obligation is pretty much what that comes down to but is that really what Matthew's talking about here When he writes it that way, as this being the words of Jesus, that, all right, we have to pay back money we owe and forgive those who owe us money or not pay that back. How does that work, right? If you were to go and look at the same version of the Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel, Luke does not use the word, the same Greek word, for debts. And in fact, if you look in the NIV Bible, it doesn't say debts. It says sins. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Two different Greek words that are used there. So Matthew and Luke don't agree on what Jesus actually said when he taught this. But pull the idea together, because I think we can make sense out of this. It's not that one's right, the other's wrong. It's not that there's a mistake. But the prayer is after something in particular, that it's about forgiveness. Forgiveness, particularly when we've been wronged. When I've been wronged and I think somebody owes me something to make that right. They owe me a debt to make it right. That kind of forgiveness. A forgiveness that is willing to let go of grudges. That's a question of posture. You know what posture is, right? I mean, you're all sitting in seats right now, but there are different postures you can have while sitting. We can all be in relationships with people who've wronged us somehow. But there's different postures to that relationship. A posture of forgiveness is what's called for here. Now, this is a comparative statement, not a conditional statement. And this gets a little bit dicey in how the Greek comes together, especially when you flip forward to those very last verses that I read, right? Because if you forgive others, your Father in heaven will forgive you, but if you do not forgive others, you will not be forgiven. It sounds conditional, doesn't it? Conditional in the sense of if I don't forgive other people, then I'm not forgiven by God. It may sound that way, but but think this one through because that would mean that my salvation is not dependent on what Jesus did for me at the cross, but would have to be dependent on something I do or fail to do. That's not what the Bible teaches. So what's this after then? It's more of a comparative statement, not a conditional statement. Comparative in the sense of we are people who are forgiven by God. That God makes the first move to do that. That's the extension of grace. The Apostle Paul writes about that in the New Testament when he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we don't have to come and prove anything before God in order to receive the forgiveness of God. The Bible is clear about that. So how does this come together then? Well, I I think some of this makes sense naturally if you think about it. I, I have four kids, and when my kids were younger, they would sometimes argue, as young kids do, and sometimes, you know, as a parent, you have to step in, and you have to tell your kids, all right, Tell your sister you're sorry for what they did. Okay, sorry. I don't know if they really meant it. All right, tell your sister that you forgive. You. I forgive you. And I don't know if they really mean it. Um, I shouldn't pick on my own kids there. That's my childhood, right? Uh, my own fightings with my own sisters. You can't force someone to really forgive someone else. It can't be done out of obligation, can it? But it has to be genuine. It has to be real. Actual real forgiveness comes from the heart. Actual real forgiveness is a posture that we embrace. That's what makes this a comparative statement. That we're praying before God to say, God, just as you are the one who forgives the people who sin against you, who have trampled all over your laws and commands and decrees, just as you forgive people like that, people like me. May I be the kind of person who forgives others like that in that same way. May I have that same posture. All right, then one more. The last one, at least as we get here in Matthew's treatment of this. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Something about a process that takes place here, a process of being conformed into the image of Christ. It's not actually God who leads into temptation. We shouldn't think of that. That God is somehow the cause or the source of being tempted. God would not do that. That God is not the source of temptation. But it's more a statement of fact. God, because you are a God who does not lead into temptation, you are a God who delivers us from the evil that comes from temptation. It's more a statement of a matter of fact that way. And evil, what's he talking about there? Because in the version that the NIV, we talk about it being the evil one. If you go back to the old King James, it's just, evil. Uh, the literal Greek is the evil. right? Deliver us from the evil. And you know, what does the evil mean? I don't want us to get hung up on that. right? This is not so much a theological explanation about spiritual warfare and how that works. It's not a theological explanation on the nature of evil and how that works in the world. What it is in the context of a prayer here is that It's a declaration that says, God, we trip up and fall into temptation. And sometimes we do that often. But I'm coming to God in prayer to say, deliver me from the trap, the grip of that evil, of that sin. That when I fall into temptation, and we all do from time to time, that when temptation finds its way to trip me up and stumble me, God, be the one to pick me up again. Be the one to set me straight again. It's a prayer that acknowledges, I can't do that part on my own, right? That I am not on my own strong enough to be able to fight and resist temptation and sin as it comes to me, and I on my own do not have the strength it takes to get up over and over again and start walking that road of faithful obedience to God, that God himself comes to assist and to guide and to lead on that, that we are being formed more and more into the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit working that in us. That's what we pray before God as a process continue to do that so pull this one all together then pull it together it's a prayer then that really is a prayer for personal sanctification we talk about those two things in the church justification and sanctification that justification is what jesus does on the cross and only jesus can do on the cross it's what makes us right before god sanctification is what happens after that the Holy Spirit working in our lives that day by day by day we learn more and more of what it means to walk in faithful obedience to God. This is a prayer that embraces that. A prayer that says, God, help me to walk that road of sanctification. Learning more and more of what it means to be the person you've created me to be, called me to be, so what does this mean for prayer? I know often prayer can be for us something where we just bring our list of needs before God. God, here's what I'm working on. Here's what's a struggle in my life. Here's what's been given, and I want to thank you for it. And prayer is a list, sometimes maybe a checklist of things that way. But what the Lord's Prayer shows us, what this passage shows us, is that prayer as a faith practice is something that changes us. That prayer itself can change me, can mold and shape my heart to follow God more closely when we pray like that. Prayer then, prayer then is not something that is meant to change God's heart or mind to bend towards what I want, But rather, prayer is something that's meant to change my heart to bend towards what God wants. That prayer does that. It's not the chief end of prayer to get God to answer what we want. It is the chief end of prayer for God to change me into what He wants. That's what prayer does for us. And that's where a prayer like this sets us in that process of always asking and looking, God, what is it that I can see or do or realize better to be a better disciple, a better follower of Jesus that I can't do on my own, but only by the Holy Spirit working in me. We are people who have been redeemed by God. We come before God as his people that way. People who are forgiven by God. People who are being made new, sanctified by God to be his followers. That's what comes through when we pray before God. And let's pray together now. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and that even in your word you show us and teach us how to pray to you and how to be in communication to you. God, we're sorry for times when perhaps prayer has become something of our list of demands that we bring before you instead of being something which places us in your presence to see how it is that you are the one who is shaping us. And so Lord, we pray, we pray that as we engage this process of being in communication with you, however those prayers happen, whether it's silently and personal and by ourselves or whether it's in a circle, in a group with people, however that happens, Lord, may prayer be something that transforms us, changes us to be the disciples you want us to be. Help us to do that, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.